We closed out our last book study in the Gospel of Luke, and then we began the series that we're currently in on what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus, which has taken us through these summer months. Uh, we're going to go into the pastoral epistles, beginning in 1 Timothy, uh, later in the fall as we get started into a new church year. But today our text is from John chapter 17. And I'm going to give you some context of the chapter in its entirety. And then we're going to focus specifically on John 17 and verse 17 in a message entitled, Live in the Truth. Now, you may have heard the phrase somewhere along the way, uh, live in your truth or live your truth. Both of these are fairly commonly used in culture and according to popular culture, it means to live as your most authentic self, and do whatever it is that makes you happy. At the core of this principle is the idea that truth is relative and there are no absolutes. The claim that truth is relative posits that there are no universal truths about the world. What you believe is true for you and what I believe is true for me and we can hold to either of those. Truth is in the eye of the beholder, meaning that no statement is ever ultimately true or false, good or bad, right or wrong. It's whatever makes you most happy so that you can be your authentic self. Now, there are all sorts of problems with this. Uh, one of the main problems is that we deal with absolutes on a daily basis just if you consider a study in contrast, for example, if something is up, then it's not down. If it is night, then it's not day. If we're in Cross Lanes, West Virginia right now, then we are not at the same time in Los Angeles, California. If something is good, then it's not bad. And on and on I could go. Then science has all sorts of concepts that people agree with and uh, basically build their lives around. If you take gravity, for example, gravity is defined as the force by which a planet or other body draws objects toward its center. So if we wanted to illustrate this today, we could climb up on the roof of the building and we could roll off. And I guarantee you that we're going to hit the ground. Uh, because of the idea and the reality of gravity. And what's really interesting to me about this is that people seem to resist universal truth, most often in the realm of spiritual and moral matters. The reason that people resist the idea of universal truth in spiritual and moral matters is because the human heart is rebellious. And the rebellious human heart wants to do what it wants to do. We, in our fallen nature, resist accountability from anyone. We especially don't want to deal with accountability from the idea of God because that's ultimate accountability. Someone said we live in the age of think what you want, say what you want, and do what you want. If instead we work from certain premises that are taught to us from God, by God, through his word, through his son, and through what God has made, 
then it will set our direction both now, it will shape our worldview, and it will set our direction eternally. If we believe that there is a God who has revealed himself to us through general revelation, which would be creation and what we can look around and see, who has revealed himself to us through special revelation, which would be his word and his son. And if we believe that the word of God is true, then neither of the statements, truth is relative or there are no absolutes, will hold up under scrutiny. The Bible deals with all kinds of absolutes, life and death, light and darkness, obedience and disobedience, righteousness and sin, faith and unbelief, judgment and salvation, heaven and hell, and on and on we could go. Our focus today is on the subject of truth from the prayer of Jesus, the Son of God, to God the Father in John chapter 17. It's commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer. And it's the longest prayer of Jesus that we have recorded in the Bible. He prayed it after he gave instruction to his disciples and before he was betrayed and arrested and crucified. Jesus prays, first of all, in John 17 for himself. And then second of all, he prays for his disciples. And then third of all, he prays for all believers, which is encompassing of us as well. Jesus in his prayer revealed his purpose for coming to the earth. He had come to glorify the father and to give eternal life to all who believe in him. And when he shifted focus to the disciples, he referred to God, the father, giving the disciples to him. And Jesus prays for their protection because he knew that the world would hate them for his sake. Then he prayed specifically in verse 17. This is how the text reads. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. I want to give you a baseline definition of what truth is. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. It is conformity to fact. If we believe that truth is that which corresponds to reality, and it is conformity to fact, then we will also hold that truth is eternal and unchanging. And I want to ask and answer these questions today. What is the source of truth? How is truth declared? And then how is truth lived? What is the source of truth? How is truth declared? And how is truth lived? The first question is, what is the source of truth? And the answer, truth is anchored in the character of God. When we think about the characteristics of God, we often focus on two aspects of his nature. The first aspect deals with what theologians consider to be his non-moral attributes, uh, things like God is eternal, God is infinite, uh, God is omniscient, God is omnipotent, God is omnipresent. These are things that are categorized as non-moral attributes. Not that they're not moral, but in the sense that these are things that God is, not specifically how God acts out of who he is towards his creation. 
The second aspect deals with what theologians consider to be the moral attributes of God. God is holy, righteous, good, God is love, and God is truth. Now, obviously, these are not exhaustive. Uh, Neither of them are. Uh, But they do provide a good concept of understanding the character of God. God is the God of truth. And it's been said that truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Think about these verses. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4 says, He is the rock. His word is perfect. For his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. So he's a God of truth. Psalm 31 in verse 1 says, Lord, I seek refuge in you. Let me never be disgraced. Save me by your righteousness. Into your hand I entrust my spirit. You have redeemed me, Lord, God of truth. Jeremiah 4 and verse 2 says, And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth and judgment and righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. So the source of truth is the nature of God. And there are many things that might be true or contain truth, but we can only say of God, God is truth. He's the embodiment of it. There is a contrast in the book of Isaiah with another character in the scripture. Uh, Isaiah the prophet used the imagery of a nail firmly driven into a wall to describe a man named Eliakim. You might remember Eliakim. He was a man who trusted in God. Isaiah prophesied that he would rise to the position of administrator for the palace of King Hezekiah and that he would be driven Uh, into uh, a place that would be like a peg firmly driven into place. The reference is Isaiah 22 and verse 23. He was basically saying this man is firmly anchored in God and he would be a support to his people. But there's a stark contrast uh, with a man named Shebna. Shebna also was in a place of authority and honor, uh, probably as a household treasurer during the time of uh, King Hezekiah's father. Uh, but he was not faithful as a servant of the Lord. In fact, he, he represented evil to the Jewish nation. And the Lord took his place away from him in judgment. And everybody who depended on him uh, was cut off. So what's the lesson to be learned in that contrast? Well, ultimately, God's the only one who is the permanent peg. God's the only one in whom we should ultimately trust. He's the only lasting peg. But what it says to us is we better be careful who we're hanging on to. We better be careful who we are anchored in and where our trust is. God has revealed to us truth through his son, ultimately. The one who came as God in the flesh, who's the embodiment of truth. You remember what Jesus said in John 14 and verse 6? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. What was Jesus saying? He was saying that he's the sum total of all truth. He was the embodiment and the representation of truth on the earth in his presence as the son of God. And if we believe that Jesus is the sum of all truth, then we're going to believe what he teaches us about sin and judgment 
and repentance and salvation. And I want you to know today that you have to be very careful where you look for truth. And I also want you to know that discovering and applying truth in your life requires a focused effort. We live in a world that is awash in designed narratives, carefully designed narratives to get you to think certain things, to get you to do certain things. We constantly hear talking points and sound bites and video clips, and at times we hear outright propaganda that is intended to shape us and to push certain agendas. We live in what some have referred to as the post-truth age. In the post-truth age, seeks to eliminate an objective standard and argues that truth is nothing more than a social construct. It does not matter what the majority thinks about something if it, in fact, is contradictory to what God has said he thinks about it. And we've got to be careful to understand that uh, truth is not a social construct. Truth is not determined by the opinions of people. Truth is determined by God himself. And we need to anchor ourselves in the character of God because truth is anchored in the character of God and he is the source of truth. The second question is, how is truth declared? And the answer is, truth is declared in the word of God. When Jesus prayed, he said to God the Father, your word is truth. And that's a very straightforward statement. It's very clear. It's not hard to understand. It's not up for debate. This is the word of Jesus speaking of the written word about God's truth. One of the most influential uh, theologians of the 20th century was a man by the name of Carl F.H. Henry. And he wrote extensively about the revelation of God. And his basic idea in everything that he wrote was that God is the self-revealing God. We know what we know because God has chosen to reveal himself to us. He's revealed himself to us through his creation. He's revealed himself to us through his word. He's ultimately revealed himself to us through his son. And then the Holy Spirit is working through that. And here's what Carl F.H. Henry said in part about uh, divine revelation. He said, divine revelation is the source of all truth. The truth of Christianity included. Reason is the instrument for recognizing it. Let me pause just for a moment before I share the rest of the statement. He was saying that what we believe about truth is not isolated from reason. God's given us the ability to reason. And we can reason rightly when we look to the word of God for our direction. He said reason is the instrument for recognizing it. Scripture is its verifying principle. Logical consistency is a negative test for truth and coherence, a subordinate test. And then he says this, the task of Christian theology is to exhibit the content of biblical revelation as an orderly whole. Divine revelation is the source of truth. And we have a high view of the word of God because we have a high view of God. If you do not have a high view of the word of God, you cannot say that you have a high view of God because you're saying that God was not able 
to give a trustworthy word to us, that God was not trustworthy himself to communicate what is true to us. So a high view of God and a high view of scripture go hand in hand and they cannot be separated. Psalm 119 and verse 160 says, the entirety of your word is truth. Proverbs 30 and verse 5 says, every word of God is true and pure. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And then Revelation 21 and verse 5 says, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now, some claim that truth as declared in the word of God and dependence on that for your argument is nothing more than circular reasoning. In other words, if you make your argument for the truth of the word of God from the word of God, that you've got nothing to go on because it's merely circular reasoning. Circular reasoning, if you know anything about logic, is a logical fallacy because the reasoner is beginning with what they're trying to end with. So is what we believe based on merely circular reasoning? My answer is no, but let me tell you why. Norm Geisler, the Christian apologist, uh, pointed to two categories of evidence that the Bible is, in fact, God's word. These are not specific to Geisler. There are other apologists that do the same, uh, but I want to reference him as I draw from some of what he wrote. He points to internal evidence and external evidence. Internal evidence includes the unity of the Word of God. We have a book. In this book, we call the Bible. And this Bible is referred to as God's Holy Word. Within this book are 66 individual books. They were written in part, at least, on three continents. They were written primarily in two different languages and then partly in a third. This book was written over a period of 1,500 years by at least 40 different authors from different backgrounds, and yet it is one unified book from the beginning to the end. This is miraculous in and of itself, and it is internal evidence from the unity of the Word of God that would point to the truthfulness of the Word of God. I believe also that internal evidence includes prophecy in the Word of God. There are hundreds of prophecies referring to any number of things in incredible detail. There are, for example, more than 300 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, including where he would be born, how he would die, the fact that he would rise again. There are all sorts of prophecies about what would take place in the Messiah. And these are internal evidences of the Word of God. And there are many others that we could reference. Internal evidence also includes the authority and the power of the Word of God, meaning that lives have been supernaturally transformed and sinners delivered, including my own. How do I know what I know about God? I know it from the Bible. How did I know that I was lost and needed to be saved? I learned it from God's Word. And you did as well. 
And there are countless stories of people that didn't know anything about Christianity. They didn't know anything about theology. They didn't know anything. They'd never been in Sunday school or anywhere else. And they sat down, picked up the Bible, and began to read it. And in that Bible, they discovered a God who created them, loved them, and could save them. And their lives were powerfully transformed. Those are some of the internal evidences, not all of them. And then for the external evidence, the external evidence includes in part the historicity of the Bible. The Bible records historical events. Uh, There are archaeological findings and evidence along with extra biblical writing uh, that confirm the historical accounts that have demonstrated time and again that the Bible is true. I was reminded of this very powerfully recently as we were in Israel and the Holy Land. Did you know that there are more than 37,000 verified archaeological sites in Israel? And the Jewish archaeologist Nelson Gluick said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made that confirm, either with a clear outline or with an exact detail, historical statements in the Bible. That is an external evidence. Another external evidence includes the indestructibility of the Word of God. The Bible's been attacked, and there have been more attempts to destroy it and to do away with it than any other book in history. If you read history, you'll find that there are examples of emperors and dictators and atheists and governments and everything else who have basically uh, made an onslaught against the word of God. It's been almost continual and it still uh, continues today. And yet the Bible is the most published book in the world. They tried to destroy it and do away with it and it's just proliferated. And not only has it proliferated, but people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ around the world in record numbers. Heaven is going to be populated by people who are from every tribe and tongue and nation. And they're going to be populated just as Jesus said. Why? Because the Word of God has told us how to know Him and how to make Him known. Now, I want to ask this question because I think it's very important. It's an important nuance that we don't need to skip over. Is the Bible the Word of God, or does it simply contain the Word of God? Is it the Word of God, or does it simply contain the Word of God? This distinction is incredibly important. Protestant liberalism of the 19th and 20th century sought to reduce the faith to a human experience at the expense of biblical authority. Biblical criticism supposed that modern reason was superior over historic and long-held views of the Bible. Critical methods of studying the Bible challenged long-held views of the truthfulness of the Bible. And it was basically the modernist movement that arose out of that 18th and 19th century uh, liberalism that sought to undermine the truthfulness of Scripture. Now, there's a major issue with that because what it does is it says now we are judge and jury 
over the Word of God. We're the authority over the Bible rather than the Bible and the Word of God being the authority over us. I don't know if you've ever heard the name uh, J. Gresham Machen or not, but he was a Presbyterian and a Bible scholar in the early 20th century. Machen was a professor at Princeton Seminary from 1906 to 1929, and he led a conservative movement against modernist theology. Machen wrote the classic work Christianity and Liberalism, and in it he demonstrated how liberalism's understanding of Scripture is in error because it elevates experience over the Bible. And here's what Machen wrote in part. He said, Christian experience is rightly used when it confirms the documentary evidence, but it can never possibly provide a substitute for the documentary evidence. Experience is important, but it can never be separated from the truths of Scripture and from Scripture itself. And Machen called the Bible the infallible rule of faith and practice. So he wasn't saying that our experience with God is not important. Of course it's important. It's significant to who we are. It's it's part of our story. It's part of how God has changed us and how we continue to see God at work in our lives. Experience is important, but it's only accurate when it confirms the evidence of the Bible, which is in fact the declared truth that has come to us from God. And if our experience is contradictory to what the Bible says, our experience is wrong. And I've seen this so many times through the years in pastoral ministry where people will tell me, I know the Bible says this, but, and then there's some story that follows. Okay, let me just tell you this. If you say, I know that the Bible says this, but, then when you get to that part of your sentence, you're going in the wrong direction and you need to turn around because if the Bible says this, then this is what you need to do. This is how you need to guide your life. This is what you need to hold to because this is the trustworthy word of God. Truth is declared in the word of God and God has spoken to us in part through human words. And the reason that he has spoken to us in part through human words is because he wants us to understand what he's saying. Remember, he's the self-revealing God. And the reason that he's the self-revealing God is because he wants his glory to be made known and he wants us to know him and to be rescued from darkness and delivered into the light. The third and final question is, how is truth lived? How is truth lived? The answer is truth is lived in the power of the Spirit of God. You'll note in John 17 that when Jesus prayed for the disciples, he said in part, do not, uh, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Why would Jesus pray such a thing? Because he knew they were going to experience and he knew we were going to experience the difficulty of living in a sin-fallen world. He knew that Satan is going to try to convince us that following God is just not worth it. I'd say there's not one of us in this room today who have been following Christ for any time at all, who have at least not in our minds asked ourselves that question at some point along the way because we encountered difficulty or we encountered opposition or we encountered discouragement. And we began to ask, is it really worth it? 
And what that is, is that is the spiritual enemy trying to convince us that God is not good and God is not trustworthy and God cannot be depended on. And yet Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And Jesus says, because he's overcome the world, that we can find our joy in him and we can overcome the world. And I want you to know that it is absolutely worth it. And if I did not believe that God was true and that God is trustworthy in his word, I would not waste my time doing what I'm doing. I would not invest my life in it. But I can tell you the reason that I'm investing my life in it is because I believe that God is who he says he is. I believe that God's word is trustworthy and true. And I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I want to live out that truth all the way to eternity. And Jesus said in John 17 and verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. What is this whole idea of sanctification about? Well, salvation is the beginning of life with Jesus when we repent and believe. And sanctification means to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be made holy. It means for your life to be dedicated to God, ultimately conformed to the image of Jesus. We have been sanctified if we've been saved because we've been set apart by God. We are being sanctified if we're living the truth and the power of the Spirit of God. And we will be sanctified when God finishes the good work in us that he has started. Your sanctification is essentially your purification. Let's use the example of water purification in the physical realm as a comparison here. If you think about water purification, it's a major need around the world. We're very blessed to have reasonably uh, clean and, uh, and pure water that we can draw from easily or we can purchase it if for some reason we don't have it otherwise. And water purification for human consumption is a big issue around the world. There are a lot of people that don't enjoy the same uh, blessing that we do in that regard. And water purification for human consumption includes the removal of certain contaminants. So you're trying to get pollutants out of it. You're trying to remove the toxins. Maybe there's algae or some type of harmful bacteria or there's some type of fungi or parasites or whatever the case might be. And water purification includes physical processes like filtration or distillation. Uh, biological processes like sand filters or active carbon, chemical processes like chlorination or the use of ultraviolet light. And the point is you're trying to arrive at a safe and drinkable water for human consumption. And you might have read the story recently out at the Grand Canyon. There were a, was a major outbreak of gastrointestinal illnesses, um, better known as explosive diarrhea, in the Grand Canyon starting in the springtime. And they started to study where did this come from because it, it was some type of uh, norovirus that they don't know exactly where it came from. But it started with people who were on uh, rafting trips in the spring. And a possible theory as to how this virus got started is because they were drinking from contaminated water sources. They, although they're not sure exactly what the source was just yet. And what we should desire as followers of Jesus is just like we want to draw from pure water to be able to drink it and to be healthy, is that we want to draw from the purity of the word of God rather than the pollution of the world. 
And you understand, you, you've got that, that dynamic that, that is in opposition to one another. The purity of the word of God or the pollution of the world. And it's only by the purity of the word of God that we're going to grow to be more like him by the power of the spirit. And sanctification takes place practically when you live in the truth by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit in your life. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit renews our minds and transforms our lives so that we can become more like Jesus. And friend, when you are more like Jesus, that means you're going to love the things he loves. You're going to desire the things he desires. Leon Morris said, sanctification is not affected apart from divine revelation. They go hand in hand. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Say, practically, how do I apply this to my life? Through prayer and time in the word. The nature of Jesus will permeate you. Read it. Study it. Memorize it, meditate on the word, use the word in your daily life to grow in your relationship with God. And that is how truth is lived. It's lived in the power of the spirit of God. I want to give you this quote and then I'm going to close. A quote by Blaise Pascal. And I'm going to tell you when he wrote it or said it. He said, truth is so obscure in these times and falsehood so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. That sounds incredibly contemporary. And yet he wrote it in the 1600s. He spoke it in the 1600s. A reminder to us that in this fallen world, times have always been difficult. There's been the darkness of sin, the rebellion of the human heart that says, hey, live in your truth. Hey, you just be you. You don't worry about anybody else. You just be you. Don't worry about what God said. You decide what you want to do. And that is the pathway of destruction. God is saying, over here's the path of life. This is the place of blessing. This is the place of honor. Come and follow me, Jesus says. And I can promise you that if you come and follow Jesus, you will never be disappointed. You will never regret that you followed him. And you'll avoid all kinds of consequences that you would otherwise experience if you didn't. There's a story that's told about a pilot who was alone flying his small plane He looked uneasily at the heavy black clouds that were forming out in front of him and his fuel was beginning to get low and he began to ask himself the question, should he turn back? The airfield behind him was further away than the airfield in front of him 
So he decides to continue on in spite of the dark clouds that were ahead. Within minutes, he was engulfed in an unbroken grayness that seemed to have no dimensions. He couldn't tell what was up or what was down, what was right or what was left. And after a time, he began to feel that his plane was climbing. Yet a glance at his instruments assured him that he was flying straight and level. Still, the impression that he was getting was growing stronger. So he began to ask himself the question, have my instruments gone awry? Can I trust them? Because I can't see where I'm going. Perhaps my instruments are faulty. And finally, his impressions, his feelings, won out. He decided that something must have gone wrong with his instruments, and he better not rely on them. So he began to fly as they say, by the seat of his pants. And there was a farmer who was making his way under those overcast skies to his barn. And he heard a plane flying dangerously low. And in just a few moments, he heard the explosion when it crashed. What had caused the tragedy? The pilot had a standard in his instruments by which to determine his position. However, he decided to trust his impressions and his feelings rather than the instruments, and it cost him his life. There's a spiritual application here. We've got a true and trustworthy anchor in who God is, in what God has said in his word, and in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. As Christians, we need to determine that we are going to follow what we know to be trustworthy, regardless of what we feel, or regardless of all the noise around us, or regardless of the impressions that we're getting, or what we're thinking we want to do. We come back to the anchor, and we follow Jesus with all that we have and all that we are and all that we hope to be. We trust in God and his word for our lives. And I can promise you if we do that by his grace, he'll take us safely home. And he'll be honored and glorified in the process. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. If you are a follower today of Jesus Christ, you have a sure and steady anchor on which to build your life, a solid foundation. Are you living in the truth, in God's truth? If you are, you got much to be thankful for. Christian, would you just take a moment and thank God that he loves you? He made you, he saved you, and now he's making you to be more like Jesus. What a blessing. What a blessing to be called a child of God. Would you ask God to help you to be protected from the lies of the enemy, the father of liars? Would you ask God to give you wisdom and discernment and and an understanding of his truth so that you can go in the direction that he wants you to go in? But then maybe there's some here today who have never answered that call to come and follow Jesus. And 
you're going in all sorts of directions right now, except in the way of God. And he's inviting you to life with him. It's a, a life that is filled with his love. It's a life that is overwhelmed by his grace. And it's a life that is a great blessing. And I wonder today, if you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, if you would repent of your sins and believe in him. The Bible says if you will confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Today, your life could change forever. God, thank you that you've given us truth, that you are the embodiment of truth, that you've communicated truth to us through your word, and that your Holy Spirit works in us to apply and confirm that word. God, we thank you that you've called us to this blessed life. And I pray that we would live it well and that we would honor you and glorify you in all that we do. Protect us from error. Help us to be able to filter out the voices in the world that would lead us toward the pollution and help us to be led toward the purity of Christ and who we are and how we live. We give this time of response and and conclusion over to you and ask that you would work with it as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.